I found myself very often with patients sitting in front of me, having them say things like, I feel like I'm in survival mode. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. I feel like I'm just living on fumes. And when I started to hear that survival mode, it actually took me back to remembering when I read Robert Sapolsky's book, Why mm. Zebras Don't, Get, Don't ulcers. Get Ulcers. This book is a phenomenal explanation of the stress response system and how it affects us systemically. And I was talking with someone about this and she said, oh, so like, oh, I was saying they're like in survival overdrive. And she said, oh, like survival overdrive, it's like a syndrome. She said that and my brain went, oh, SOS. And then I was like, oh, that's oh, perfect. That's perfect. Exactly what yes. we're talking about. Like, Cause you feel like you need an SOS. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. All right. Well, welcome to Pursuing Health. I am very, very excited about today's episode. I am interviewing a woman who I have looked up to and followed for a very long time in medicine. And I'm very excited to be speaking today with Dr. Aviva Ram. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. <laughs> I want to share before we dive in, because we have a lot to talk about. I want to just um, share a little bit about your bio because it's very impressive. And I think you know, so many of the reasons why I've been interested in following your path. So you are a MD, you're also a midwife, herbalist, um, did your MD medical training at Yale, board certified in family medicine with obstetrics. So go family medicine. Mm -hmm. um, you're a, a practitioner, teacher, activist, and advocate of both environmental health and women's reproductive rights and health. I've been bridging the best of traditional medicine, total health, ecology, and good science for over three decades a longtime home birth pioneer and birth activist, and your company's philanthropic arm, Dharma Moms, yeah. provides funding for organizations working towards reproductive justice and birth equity in high-risk obstetric communities, which is so amazing and important. Also a world-renowned herbalist, author of the textbook Botanical Medic Medicines for Women's Health, as well as seven other books, including Hormone Intelligence, an instant New York Times bestseller that explores the impact of the world we live in on women's hormones and health and brings us new medicine for women that is at once holistic and natural while being grounded in the best science and medicine has to offer. You also have a podcast, articles, books, and online programs that help women take back their health and your innovative professional programs are educating the next generation of healthcare practitioners. And you live and practice in the Berkshires and New York City. So... Um, I'm excited. I, we were just talking before we pressed record that I'm taking your functional and integrative medicine practitioner course, which starts next week. And I'm very excited about that. I'm so and, to have you. <laughs> and I, I have just been so fascinated by, you know, your unique background and the way that you so seamlessly blend Eastern and Western medicine and this holistic perspective of taking care of women. And so I'm excited to, to dive in on that, but you know, I've been thinking about this interview for a long time. And then last week you shared a podcast and blog on perfectionism and it's titled perfectionism, healing the shadow side. And I felt like, you know, this is perfect timing because I feel like reading and listening, you were describing so much of my experience over the last two years. And I feel like we probably have a lot in common and a lot to talk about there. So I'd love to like all the dive into that. Women are going to be like, that's me. That's me. That's me. Because that is the shadow side, right? It's that is right. Everything that brings us to excellence, which I mean, you're a competitive athlete, you're a healthcare provider. You have all the things that drive you to do what you do really, really well. And we want our healthcare providers and our athletes to be excellent. But the right. shadow side is like the relentless part that no matter how much we achieve, it's like, I could be better. I don't know enough. Da, 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 da. Totally. And it's the part that we just live with in our heads and we don't talk about and we don't share about. And, yeah. and instead we have this, you know, we want to have this image of, of perfection. Exactly. And I think, and we live with it in our heads, but I mean, we live with it in our bodies too, right? Yes. It affects us. So true. So true. Well, 
And, and I love how you talk about it too. You know, we acknowledge the good parts of it, right? The parts of it that have allowed us to be successful in life. And then there's also this shadow side, like there is of probably most any quality. So I guess, how did you come to discover and identify, like what went into the writing of this blog? Why now? And and why do you think it's important? Yeah. So it's actually something that I had written quite a long time ago. And then I went back into it and revived it and was like, okay, this is really happening for me again in the moment. Mm, so okay. The backstory of how that particular article came about and podcast came about was a patient of mine who, it was eight or 10 years ago, came to see me. She is also just like this incredibly high functioning, very driven um, in her 60s at the time I saw her last, I saw her initially. She was working out two hours a day, six days a week with a personal trainer running a company, has mm -hmm. four grown kids, grandkids traveling all around the country. And, and also like her kids are all literally doctors and lawyers. And <laughs> her husband's really successful. So she had like all of this high, high functioning, great stuff going on in her life. Mm -hmm. But she had this intense inner unrest. Mm -hmm. She was just kind of dogged all the time by this inability to just kind of relax and put it all down. Mm -hmm. And like, she was never quite fit enough, never quite successful enough, all the things like not quite enough and just pushing herself. So by the time she came to me, she had Hashimoto's. She was really more tired and wired than exhausted. Like she was functioning and keeping on going all day long. So she wasn't particularly exhausted in the day, but when it came to going to bed at night, she just couldn't, it was like her brain couldn't stop. Mm -hmm. It was like, mm -hmm. close her eyes. And it was like the light bulbs were still on, you know? And so with all of my patients, I always try to look at, you know, where did this person come from? Where did this, like conventional medicine just sort of is like, okay, you're diabetic. That started today. Let's give you medication. It's not like, right. where did this come from? You have, you know, whatever it is, rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, you, it's genetic. Let's not bother to look at all the things. Mm -hmm. so I always like to look at all the things. And I also like to know who my patients are, like who's this human being in front of me. So I went back in her story with her. And what I learned about Marnie is that she grew up in a tenement setting in a major city to immigrant parents from Eastern Europe who had come over due to political unrest that they escaped from. And they were quite poor. There were five kids living in this tenement, you know, like, I mean, like, you know, not adequate heat, all mm, the things. Mm -hmm. A lot of And stuff. yeah. And so she, from the earliest she could remember, she got a meager allowance that her dad could afford, you know, like a quarter kind of thing. She worked, she saved. As soon as she could get a job, she got a job. As soon as she could get a second job, she got a second job. And by the time she was in college, she had two jobs. She was going to school at night wow. and on weekends. And I'm sitting with this woman and it was as if some kind of, I don't even know how to explain it. Even now, like when I say it, I get goosebumps, but mm. it was just like this moment of clarity. And I looked at her and just out of my mouth tumbled, Marnie, you're feeding hungry ghosts that aren't even chasing you anymore. And I had mm. only ever heard that expression, hungry ghosts. In, it was a Tracy Chapman song that <laughs> in the material world. She says a line about hungry ghosts. And mm -hmm. um, it turns out that it's actually a concept in Buddhism where you have, and they have like, these demons that look, that you know, like they're depicted visually. Mm -hmm. You can look online. And they're like these skinny demons, but this full belly. And they're these demons of emotional or some kind of, empty space that you're always trying to fill, but can never be satisfied. Mm -hmm. It's trauma that we're always trying to heal from or some, some emptiness that we're trying to replace that void. Mm -hmm. And for her, the fear was that if she stopped at any time in her life, she was going to be back in poverty. That was mm -hmm. it. Like she was going to go from riches to rags mm -hmm. like overnight and be back in that tenement. So when I reflected that to her, she you could just see like, she just stopped, you know, like when you're with a patient and they're just like, Oh, uh -oh. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, she took a second or like half a minute. She was like, wow, that is exactly what's happening. Mm 
So at that point, I was sometimes still doing my, you know, it still happens. I do my medical notes, mm-hmm. you know, hours or the next day after, like, what mm-hmm. is it with medical notes that you just want to put them <laughs> off? And then right. like, become like that. Just always fall to the bottom of the oh list. Oh my gosh, they're like the only part of patient care I don't like. And I do oh, very like personalized notes. So we had had dinner and it was like eight o'clock and I'm sitting and typing up her note. And I was just like, wow, Aviva. She is like, you know, like in the um, Christmas Carol movies, like there's the ghost of Christmas past. Mm -hmm. It's like, she is your ghost of Christmas future. Wow. Um, She is like your cautionary tale. I mean, she's absolutely lovely. I mean, love her. And Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't like, oh, you don't want to be like that when you grow up because I would totally. She's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, She's amazing. (laughs) And at the same time, I was like, you are living with the same relentless fears that are driving you Mm. to do more and more and more. And, you know, we all have like, when we're building a career, there is that point in your career where you do say yes to a lot of things Mm -hmm. because you're paying your dues, you're building your platform, you're getting out there in the world. So, you know, I was teaching a lot, doing a lot of things. And all of those things were things I loved doing. But there was this underbelly of it, of like, almost like a low hum of anxiety that was also accompanying, well, don't say no, because if you say no to this, then you might not get the other opportunity. And then you might not like Mm -hmm. build this. And then you might not have adequate economics and then everything might fall apart. So I was operating under that same kind of fear. Yeah. Really. Mm -hmm. And so... That was going on for me. And then very shortly after I came up against a wall, I was working in a very high profile um, medical setting and it was not a healthy situation for me anymore. And I needed Mm -hmm. to branch out on my own. And it was a long six month process in coming. And finally it reached just this critical mass of like, Mm -hmm. no, I can't come back. Mm-hmm. And the person I was working for went ballistic on me, so ballistic that I literally had to put the phone on speakerphone so my husband could hear because I didn't think anyone believed the things yeah. that were being yeah. said to me were actually it was so abusive. Wow. And when I left that job that day, it was like this experience. Have you ever been in an electrical storm and all the electricity in your house goes out and it's so quiet? Mm-hmm. Like you didn't realize the refrigerator was humming. Absolutely. Like all the sound is gone. <laughs> and it was this kind of that experience with Marnie. And then following very quickly after that, this complete inner quiet where I could actually feel that I had this, I'm very like kind of body aware. Mm-hmm. And I actually felt this sensation as if I had an, a motor or an electric generator mm-hmm. running in my solar plexus. Mm-hmm. That suddenly was quiet. And I was like, okay, you're okay. Mm-hmm. You're going to be okay. You're fine. You don't have to live out that old story mm-hmm. of fear and scarcity anymore. And what I would say is that it's a process. It happened. It, it comes back periodically where like I get into not on purpose, but we're like, it just kind of kicks in, that old mode kicks in and it's still part of me. Mm -hmm. But I have that touchstone of quiet. Mm -hmm. So when now I'm in that other space of like doing too much saying yes, that motor feels like it's running again, Mm -hmm. like I'm on this automatic pilot of driven instead of driving myself, Mm -hmm. I can remember the touchstone more quickly and say, okay, I don't like feeling like this. I want to feel like that. And granted, I mean, I've arrived at a place in my work and my career where I have more latitude to say mm-hmm. no to things. And But the fear doesn't go away. I don't come from like a trust fund where I can just sort of like retire. <laughs> I still have to do the things. So the fears right. come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's kind of the story of how it all happened. And I think for so many women, it shows up in so many different ways. And some of us have, well, and to add to that, For me, as I sat with my own story, just in a nutshell, I grew up in a housing project, single Mm -hmm. mom. I was born in 66. So this was in the 70s. It wasn't like a knife and gun clubs housing project at that time. Mm -hmm. By the time I was hitting like 12 years old, crack cocaine had come in. It wasn't an easy place to be either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I 
have a deep love of words and a deep love of science. And from a very early age, like first grade, I won my first science fair. My second grade, I was winning my first spelling, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I love those things. And I was rewarded for those things. Mm -hmm. And they became a a diversion. And also they became a source of like, maybe dopamine support Mm -hmm. or success or validation. But they also became my way out of that housing project so that by 14, I had won enough spelling bees and enough science fairs and done the things and gotten into the prestigious New York public, but like very famous high school mm-hmm. to the point that by the time I was 14 and a half, I was accepted to college. Wow. So this combination of like excellence mm-hmm. and intellect paired with reward and safety became this two sides mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of the coin for me. And so much of that, you know, early conditioning when you're a child is stuff that, you know, we all develop these patterns that are so subconscious that then influence our behaviors later in life and our thought patterns and our emotions. And so, um, yeah, what them as default modes Mm -hmm. and some of us have perfectionism as a default mode. Some of us go into, let's say I call it good girl mode Mm -hmm. and that can arise from, and many perfectionists are also, you know, we have multiple aspects of these things, but sometimes the good girl might've been a situation where, for example, there was a lot of mental health or emotional turbulence in the childhood home. And the thing to do was to not create waves, you know, to just be good, keep everything mm-hmm. smooth, or mm-hmm. the person who goes into the helping mode. And the good girl is a wonderful thing. You know, you are a person who is often quite, you're Switzerland, you know, you're mm-hmm. the mediator, mm-hmm. but it's easy to also become more of a little bit of a doormat or be abused or say yes to things or take crap that you shouldn't have to take. And not stand or, up for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Or the person who becomes the healer and the helper and, and may sometimes become more of a martyr and may even become resentful sometimes because they feel like that. So I don't want to be facile or like label people, mm-hmm. but it's more tendencies that I have come to notice in myself and talk mm-hmm. more with my patients about too. And mm-hmm. I think there are tendencies that often are coupled with like, sometimes I'll have a patient who will come in with a certain constellation of not just physical symptoms, but emotional or psychological things going on. And I'll just say, do you just, just out of curiosity, do you happen to have an alcoholic parent or a bipolar parent? And they'll just look at me like, how did you know? <laughs> like, yeah. just, you know, I've just kind of seen some of these patterns before. And often people are like, they feel seen and recognized also, mm-hmm. and it allows them to put it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so much of it is recognizing, understanding how those patterns developed and then recognizing them in yourself so that you can accept yourself for them. Because I think yes. so many times we, you know, we're beating ourselves up because, well, why am I this way? And then when you can understand and see that, oh, well, this is how the, you know, the child in me was able to find safety or acceptance or cope with whatever was going on around me. It's such a natural thing. I mean, it's a, it's a human evolutionary trait to need to fit in and stay safe. Mm -hmm. And I think too, like for me, I have to start to look at, um, when that pattern is triggered, Mm -hmm. what's going on in my life. Am I not sleeping enough? Did Is something really particularly stressful going on? Was there some reminiscent trigger that set mm-hmm. that off? And how do I reduce the things in my life that caused me to be or stay in that pattern? Well, on that note, I'd love to hear a little bit about your, pa- your path. So, you know, you get accepted to college when you're 14 and a half, yeah. but how did you then go down the path of becoming an herbalist and then a midwife? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. So I went off to college. I got accepted when I was 14, started, I'm born in June. I started September of the year I was 15. And within like two months, I had this kind of hippie roommate from Vermont. (laughs) And I got connected with this man who is this beautiful Mayan descent, Latino man whose mother was a hunter college professor in Latino women's studies and just sort of was out of the housing project in this very liberal 
crunchy and extremely unregulated environment. Mm -hmm. So quite honestly, within like two months, (laughs) I went vegetarian, was listening to reggae, started smoking (laughs) weed, started taking mushrooms and got really interested in food politics, women's Mm. health policy. And it's so funny because like in the past, I would have said those things. Mm -hmm. People even now they're like, oh my God, she did that when she was 15. But keep in mind, I was in college. So it was like a little bit of a fast forward for me. (laughs) Right. Um, But now when I talk about mushrooms and cannabis, people are like, oh, wow. And I don't actually do those things now, but they were really mind altering, eye opening Mm -hmm. portals into a completely different way of thinking and being. Mm-hmm. And that was accompanied by, at the same time, Cold War, nuclear arms escalation. Mm-hmm. And that drove a lot of, I think, more than I realized at the time, a, a desire or, or sense of need to learn how to be more in control of things like my healthcare, should I ever need to be or should my community need me to be. So Mm -hmm. I I really wanted to learn how to receive babies into the world and know basic barefoot medicine and learn herbs. And so that was happening. And at the same time, I was learning about the intersection of the industrial chemical pharmaceutical complexes and the food industry and how they were all tied together. And I really was such an idealistic, I haven't really changed that much, radical, <laughs> haven't changed that much, teenager. Mm-hmm. And the ways forward that I found were to study midwifery and to learn herbal medicine. But there was nothing at that time. I mean, even the first naturopathic school was still a glimmer. Wow. The term integrative medicine didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was the, it was like very early here. Yeah, nothing. Mm-hmm. So I left school at 16 and apprenticed (laughs) myself to a midwife, started studying everything I could on herbal medicine, which at the time was like four books existed (laughs) literally going into old, you know, old texts that I could find. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it all happened. And so I was learning all kinds of things. Like, I don't know that I could still do this, but I know how to do fire by friction skin animals, brain hand hides, make cordage, create shelter in the woods. Like I was really in it. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was so cool. And And that led to midwifery practice, herbal medicine practice. And it was such an early time. I remember at one point, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago, Googling something when when we had, this was before Google that I was Mm -hmm. doing all this, but I Googled something on herbs and pregnancy. And like the first three things that came up were things I wrote. And I was like, this is actually a very scary state of affairs. <laughs> and there's more now on it. But yeah. I think I was just a few steps ahead. So that really opened the door for me to teach and write and mm-hmm. be kind of almost like people now say like, oh, pioneer. Mm-hmm. And then I had my children. And at some point, the concept of integrative medicine started to grow. There was herbal medicine. There were, you know, naturopaths. There's all the things that we have now. But there was this huge, and still is, a pretty big chasm between mm-hmm. what was happening outside of the halls of conventional medicine and what was happening inside of it. And it was at that time that people were getting more interested in doing things out of the box, but conventional medicine was very rigid. So, for example, a woman could, t- a mama could take her four-year-old to the pediatrician and the pedi- and the baby, the four-year-old could have an earache mm-hmm. and the pediatrician would immediately recommend antibiotics because that was recommended for everything still kind of is, even <laughs> though we know 70% of antibiotics recommended are inappropriately prescribed. Yeah. And the mom might say something back like, well, is it a viral infection? Like, do we need antibiotics? And the pediatrician would often say something like, do you want your child to go deaf? Do you want your child to die? Or a woman could be having a home birth and try to transfer to the hospital and really be mistreated. In fact, when I was apprenticing as a midwife, there was a woman who was in that situation. She wasn't even having, she wasn't even labor yet, but she was planning a home birth. Mm -hmm. She had severe, and she was was an African-American woman too. She had severe 
abdominal pain, went to the local hospital, didn't have insurance and was sent away and ended up with something called a placental abruption and lost the baby. She survived. That case actually changed some of the laws around emergency departments having to accept so this was the state of things wow. at that time. Mm-hmm. And when yeah. was this? What about that was year? Atlanta that that happened? Okay, um, that was Atlanta around 1983. No, around 1986 or seven. Okay, and so these accumulated stories and just stories of women not being seen or not being heard or me doing a pelvic exam to do a pap on one of my postpartum clients and the woman just crying because she's never had like a gentle pap before all the stories mm-hmm. finally just i said to myself i need to go back to the path and pick it up because my original plan when i went to to college young was to be a physician mm-hmm. so that was when i restarted on that path or picked it where i left off and went to med school to really be that bridge, if you will, between the worlds. So mm-hmm. that so that in conventional medicine, I can be a voice that says, hey, we need to be open to some of these things. Even if we don't believe in them, our clients or our patients are going to mm-hmm. use them. So we still need to know about them. But then also be that person that when someone was struggling with something and they needed to go into the system, mm-hmm. they had a voice they could trust. Mm-hmm. So that's Which is an incredible, you know, task in itself to go back to medical school when you already had all your children. Right. And so, and you, you know, you have a career, you're working. Oh, what was that experience saying, like? Cause medical oh, school was hard enough for me as, you know, just being myself and being in my twenties. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it was something else to do it that way. It was interesting because when I was getting ready to go, I knew quite a few physicians who were mothers who were just incredibly encouraging and supportive Mm -hmm. and they knew, they knew what it was going to be like and they were like, do it. And I don't regret in any way. I mean, it was some of the best educational years of my life and being around Mm -hmm. some of the most stellar people and just these constant aha eureka moments of like, oh, that's (laughs) what happens physiologically that's what that means, you know, translating mm-hmm. something that an herb does to like actually seeing it mm-hmm. in, in a pelvis or an abdomen in like real life in a surgery. Like, oh, that's what astringent, you know, or wow. boggy uterus means. <laughs> it's really exciting, but definitely like sometimes moms will ask me about going to medical school with little ones. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, definitely. Also know that <laughs> if you're on call, you can't just call in and say, I'm not coming because my child has a fever or because it's their birthday or... Mm-hmm all the things. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's a lot. So yes. And my husband was so funny because we've been together forever. And when I was getting ready, when I was planning to go and like doing my applications, he's like, we've got this, babe, we've got this. And I'm like, (laughs) we've totally got this. No idea. Dude, what you're getting yourself like, into. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. I'm like, you know, mansplaining <laughs> the whole thing, like how we've got this. And I can just remember coming home some days of just him like, (gasps) (laughs) with him with four kids. Oh my goodness. Wow. Uh, well, that's incredible. I know, you know, a lot of people are glad that you went and, and to be able to bring the perspective. I can't say my kids do. all were at the time, but <laughs> I'm sure it was hard for them too. And a big sacrifice for them. That's great. Back to, so back to perfectionism, or as yeah. you, as you call it, perfectionism with a capital P, we know, and as, as you explained in your patient, Marnie, and you said, this can have a lot of implications on our bodies too. And you've actually coined something called survival overdrive syndrome. Can you explain how that all works? And then what are some of the physical symptoms that we can start to experience from? Yeah. I'm from such this? a like sort of serious doctor that I'm not one who's like, oh, call it the Aviva method or call like, I'm just, you know, that's like when you're, you've gotten your Nobel prize and you've died, then you can call something after you. And I was trying to figure out like, how do I translate what it is that I'm talking about? And I found myself very often with patients sitting in front of me, having them say things like, I feel like I'm in survival mode. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. I feel like I'm just living on fumes. And When I started to hear that survival mode, it actually took me back to remembering when I read Robert Sapolsky's book, Why Mm. Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. ulcers. Yeah. I love that book. Even now, it's such a phenomenal book. And so he's a primatologist and a neurologist at Stanford. And this book is a phenomenal explanation of the stress response system. 
and how it affects us systemically and how it really, it doesn't happen in the animal kingdom until you get to us at the top of the food chain, basically. Because <laughs> of our big brains. He doesn't yeah. Offer, yeah. He doesn't really offer solutions per se, but he really lays out the physiology and pathophysiology of, uh, you know, hyper, hyper vigilance in the amygdala leading to, or, you know, memories in the hippocampus leading to activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so, something just kind of clicked in my brain. I'm like, I need to go back to that book. And as I did, I was like, this is checking off all the boxes of the things mm -hmm. that my patients are telling me. They're laying mm -hmm. down at night and they can't fall asleep and they're tired, tired and wired or they're having digestive symptoms or their immune systems are disrupted. And they're all these kind of like either subtle chronic symptoms or sometimes actually bigger symptoms mm -hmm. like hypertension or arrhythmias or cognitive dysfunction or autoimmune conditions or mm -hmm. all the things. And I was like, wow, this is really checking off all the boxes. And I was talking with someone about this and she said, oh, so like, oh, I was saying they're like in survival overdrive. And she said, oh, like survival overdrive. It's like a syndrome. In my mind, I love, as I said, I was the spelling bee kids. I love yes. playing with words. I remember I would hear acronyms in medical school, like the Comet trial. And I was like, <laughs> I just want a job where I name those acronyms. They're so, <laughs> so like, cool. So she said that and my brain went, oh, SOS. And then I was like, oh, that's oh, perfect. That's for perfect. Exactly what we're yes. talking about. Like, Cause you feel like you need an SOS. Mm -hmm. But then it was also like your body, it, it translated to me as, look, I had this image of people on a deserted beach and they're like shipwrecked and they do the SOS with logs on fire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that to me was just like this image for this chronic underlying inflammation and mm -hmm. also the call for help. Mm -hmm. Like it's your body's call for help. Absolutely. And that was such a beautiful reframe for me too. Cause I think as women, one of the first things we do is ask ourselves, what am I doing wrong or what's wrong with me? Right. So as I started to explain to my patients, like the reason that you're having trouble sticking with your exercise or the way you're trying to eat isn't because you don't have good willpower. It's that your willpower has actually been hijacked in your frontal cortex by cortisol. And here's how this happens. And they would look at me a little like, that's weird, but that sounds exactly like what's happening. Yeah. They'd also feel like, oh, it's not that there's something wrong with me or I'm doing wrong. This is like mm -hmm. a cultural, systemic Mm -hmm. my, my childhood adverse event scores, like all the mm -hmm. things at once, but that's how SOS came up. So the idea is that the stress response is supposed to be activated as a short lived thing. So I often use the gazelles at the watering hole, you know, on an African savanna and the lions coming and interesting, the lions are in survival mode because they're hungry and they're mm -hmm. on the hunt. So they're in the prey mode the fight mode. And then the gazelles, there's, there, they might, there's, you know, you can watch them in like the nature channel and their, their <laughs> nostrils flare a little, their ears start to prick a little, their backs go up a little bit and they're become hypervigilant to what's going on in their environment. And then when the lions get close enough, the gazelles run. So that's the flight mode. Mm -hmm. And then the, the lions will pick off, you know, the oldest, the youngest, the sickest, the slowest, and then what happens? The gazelles go right back to the watering hole. The lions go relax and eat their food and the whole system calms down. So that's the impact of adrenaline and short-lived cortisol response. In us, and this is why we do get ulcers, we're chronically in overdrive with that stress response. For most of us, it doesn't actually ever turn off. There's the constant to-do list. Mm -hmm. And of no fault of our own, you know, and right now we're in crazy economic times. So people feel like they need to do more. And interestingly in COVID, even though more people were working from home and had more freedom, the average work hours went up by 45 minutes a day and one day a week. So people were working more because wow. there was this like, you're always home. Yeah. No, you're always at work. You're always home. No commute. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And so there's this kind of constant low level stress. Then there's all the stressors that we're not even aware of, like mm -hmm. chronic exposure to electronics, stimulation from light when our natural body system wants to experience dark at a certain mm -hmm. time of day. And then the more punctuated stresses like 
the bills that come in or your kid getting sick or your adult parent that your older parent that you're caring for needing something. And then the bigger triggers, right? Climate change, COVID, Mm-hmm. the next school shooting. <laughs> we can keep going, and yeah. So yeah, we're living in this really heightened state and that's why I call it survival overdrive. So this system is meant to keep, be a beautiful survival mode and actually mm-hmm. a little whiff of it, like a little bit of heightened stress mm-hmm. when we're otherwise in a pretty good baseline mm-hmm. can be motivating and stimulating mm-hmm. and actually boost our immunity too. But when it's chronic... It becomes never mm-hmm. and then ultimately it can lead to underfunctioning and just kind of breakdown. Mm-hmm. And that's where we can have some of the the really serious health consequences. And I love I loved how you talked about it. You know, in the, some of those conversations with your patients, saying this is your body's SOS, your body's warning sign. And if we if we can start to shift before it you know, as you did, as you said, you know, this is my, my future ghost. If we can start to shift before, hopefully we can avoid some of those things, but obviously at any point along that path, what are some of the things, you know, for you personally, you talked about how you've, you know, you've become more aware of this perfectionism shadow side and are able to um, shift when you need to, but what are some of the things that you've found most helpful? Because I can, I can identify with your experience so much. And I think over the last two years. Um, for me, it's, um, it's been a lot of exploration of different tools and, and different work in order to become more aware and then shift that, that state. So I love to, to yeah. hear your, your best tips and tricks. I would say for me, probably the most immediately and effectively therapeutic tool is just to step away from my computer and my work and get outside. Mm-hmm. For me, getting outside shifts my perspective and it reminds me that I'm a small dot and there's this big, beautiful universe and it kind of sets everything right again. And I think also just the the physiology of you know being in, in nature really, for me personally, is deeply, profoundly effective. So getting a walk, getting out to my garden, just mm-hmm. stepping outside yes. in any so weather, healing. just that fresh mm-hmm. air, et cetera, and the light. So I'd say that's one huge thing for me. Another one is being really committed to getting good sleep. So for me, getting to bed, I'm an early riser. So I have to reverse engineer going to bed at a reasonable time. Mm-hmm. So for me, like I'll, if I get up at six, I need seven, seven hours of sleep is seven to seven and a half is my sweet spot. So really mm-hmm. making sure I'm in bed by 1030, going to sleep by 11 mm-hmm. and trying to turn off all electronics within that hour before bed. I would say I used to be better at it. It's creeped in a little bit again lately, but I've also noticed it disrupts my circadian rhythm. So I was just saying to my husband this morning, <laughs> okay, we need to 86 the Netflix for a minute and get our books back out. But I'm trying, I always read a book. So I don't have, um, I don't have a, a Kindle or anything like that, that I read. I've actually read mm-hmm. off of an actual book. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing that for me, uh, keeping my blood sugar steady, that is really important. Blood, low blood sugar is a huge driver of getting activated into that survival mode because your brain needs steady supply of glucose. Mm-hmm. For me, also journaling is really helpful. I used to be a daily avid journaler and I'm not as much anymore. I, I would love to be again where I just have like a morning 10 minute Mm -hmm. journaling practice. Mm -hmm. But I do find that journaling for me is profoundly helpful and just kind of what's going on, something I'm feeling, something I want to reflect on. It may be writing a letter. One of my, one of my most effective journaling tools for myself is writing a letter to myself as, as, Mm. as if I'm writing it in the voice of a couple of different women that I know. Oh, I love that. I have this friend. She's a bit older than I am. She's a physician also. And she always calls me baby girl. She has (laughs) since I've known her for like 30 years. She's called me baby girl. And it's not condescending. It's just like the most loving. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll write, hey, baby girl, to myself in my journal. Um, Or I have another, my, my best friend in the universe. She's just, you know, she's just always a font of honesty, but also reminder of who I am. Mm hmm. Uh, I had a funny experience a couple of months ago. And for me, I'm in menopause now and definitely menopause kind of like was another shift in my physiology Mm -hmm. and my brain functioning that I needed to like, okay, there's a new phase here. And I have had 
mostly my sleep is great, but I've had some nights where I've woken up in the middle of the night. And one night I woke up, my journal was next to my bed. And instead of just like, you know, the middle of the night thoughts, they're like the, always the most anxious. They're either your to-do list or your right. most anxious, worst thoughts. <laughs> yes. Like three hour thoughts. And it was three in the morning. I had looked at my phone and it was three in the morning. And the reason I looked at my phone is because, you know, in residency, you might get 15 minutes of sleep mm-hmm. in a whole night. And you have and no so idea how me, much time is get more than Yeah. Anytime I know I'm going to get like 30 minutes or four hours, I'm like, okay, I've got this. So three in the morning, <laughs> I was like, all right, this is not too crazy. I'll still get four hours of sleep if I go right back to bed. But my mind was working. So I picked up my journal. Well, I was reflecting on how I remembered that in Buddhist monasteries, a lot of monks get up at three in the morning to meditate. That's considered Mm -hmm. one of the prime times for meditation. Mm -hmm. So I got up, I just sat up in bed and I used my, um, a dim light. I have a Mm -hmm. light dimmer next to my bed. Mm -hmm. And I started journaling, just free form journaling about what was worrying me. And then I got into like, well, what can I do? To, to address some of these worries. Mm-hmm. And it was profound. I did that for like 30 minutes. I was so into it. And then when wow. I was done, I just put it down. I went right back to sleep. But that one night of journaling led to some really big shifts mm-hmm. in some life things that I needed to address, mm-hmm. like spending more time with girlfriends, for example. Mm-hmm. So big, yes. And that's a huge one for our mental well-being too. Yes. Oh, that's incredible. Some of the things. That's incredible. And actually very interesting advice too. I hadn't thought about that, but I I have had a similar experience of waking up in the middle of the night and having just really, you know, deep insights coming through that probably wouldn't have come to me during the day and writing those down, or sometimes I'll just voice record them on my phone. And, and I wonder if that could be helpful. You know, there's so many women who I think find they wake up in that early time around three or 4am and, you know, maybe journaling would be a good tool and maybe thinking of it as a positive, like, wow, this is a very creative time. Maybe I'll have some deep insights that come through. It's so true. I actually had this funny little insight Um, I had a patient who was really struggling with anxiety and depression. She had five children, all five boys, 12 and under. And she had gained a lot of weight as well. Her thyroid function was normal. She was just like a lot of stress and metabolism changes. And um, she in the past had had really good experience with Weight Watchers. So I asked her what about Weight Watchers was effective for her. And she said, well, they just kind of gave me this number of calories that I could kind of spend in a day. And Mm -hmm. that was it. And it was like a a guideline for me. And so she had a lot of worries. And I just was like, kind of like the hungry ghost thing. I was like, what about a Worry Watchers journal? Like, (laughs) what if you did Worry Watchers instead of Weight Watchers? And she said, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I'm getting this idea. What if I told you you had... 15 minutes a day. That's your worry calories. You have 15 Mm -hmm. minutes a day. You can worry any way you want to for 15 minutes. Write down all the worries. And so we started out with 30 minutes a day, 15 minutes after the boys were off to school and 15 minutes in the evening before bed. And so it started this thing of this worry watchers journal that I've written about and included in my last couple of books where you just get a journal. It could be a cheap notebook, you know, 79 mm-hmm. cents. Well, they're probably more than that now, but you know, I'm like a cheap notebook from the CVS. It doesn't even have to be fancy and a pen and go somewhere in your house, not your bedroom, not your bed, ideally in the evening, especially if you have worries that keep you up at night or wake you up at night and just sit, you know, sit at your kitchen table or something or in a chair and on one facing page, write down all the things that are usually going to wake you up or keep you up at night. It can be like, I'm worried about, you know, the bills. I'm worried about something happening to my partner and leaving me, you know, all the Mm -hmm. things. I'm worried about my kid, whatever it is. And then on the other side of the page, write your to-do list. The kind of thing that you're going to start to fall asleep and you're like, shoot, I need to get the dry cleaning. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to forget that appointment, right? So that the worries are out of your head and the idea with the worry watchers journal is then if the worries come back, you actually say to them, thank you so much, but I've got you covered. You're in the notebook. So you don't get any time. You don't get any airtime right now. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning you're like, oh, I've gotten my to-do list already ready for the day. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So I didn't exactly do that during the night, but I definitely did the, the kind of like worry thing and it was transformative. I love that. I love that. I have to ask you about how you 
just approach a lot of this in your daily life now. I loved the example that you gave of how you try to have one weekday that is slow paced and, and just the impact that that has had on you and what that practice is like. And then also how you balance, like you said, this idea of social media as this platform and this gift to be able to, you know, deliver content that's really making an impact on people and you do it in such an engaging and fun way. Thank you. But yeah, I love it, but not, it's something I still am really learning how to navigate of not becoming so wrapped up in you know, the things that you're putting out there or the, you know, the likes, the, the pressure to feel like you have to post all these different things that come along with social media. You seem to balance it really well. You know, in full transparency, I have, I would say, well, a few things. One, for everyone listening, keep in mind, I'm 56. I've been working since I was 15 and in my career path for a really long time now. So I have reached a point in my work where I do have the ability personally, career-wise and economically for the most part to say no to opportunities or to things that I don't want to add on as extras. So I try to craft a life where I work Monday through midday Friday, and then I essentially have a longish weekend every week. The the last few weeks I was getting ready to go see my best friend and my God kids. And it just like, you know, like when you're getting ready to go away, you need a vacation before and (laughs) before the vacation. Right. Um, So sometimes things get hectic. And then I, again, back to that quiet touchstone. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this isn't feeling good. So I quit work no later than noon on Friday and really deeply try to take that long weekend where I am basically off electronics. I might, if I know a social post is up, I might, check in on that because I love mm-hmm. to see what community engagement is happening mm-hmm. and answer people. And But I generally stay off of electronics on the weekend mm-hmm. other than if I'm watching a movie or something. And my day, because I work from home and I have the ability at this point to do this, I try to have a slower morning where instead of feeling like it's all crashing in from the minute I wake up. I, mm-hmm. I don't. So one thing is I don't have any, I don't have email on my phone and I have mm-hmm. zero notifications on my phone or my computer. Mm-hmm. So the only notifications I ever get are like, you need to do an update, right? Like the actual phone. <laughs> right, right. Update. I have literally zero notifications. So I stay off my phone in the morning. I don't check my social media. I don't check my, my phone messages and I don't get on my computer to do email first thing in the morning. When I do, it's it's just never feels mm-hmm. like I'm You always feel like you're behind the eight ball. Yeah. So I try to wake up and have a few minutes of quiet breathing. I might chat in bed with my husband, connect with him. Um, and then we start the day usually kind of slowly. We're usually getting up about 6.37 and sometimes 6. Today I got up at 5.30 and kind of lounged till 6 and then got up. Uh, have a tea or coffee. For me, it has to be decaf. I get really jangled on cold <laughs> calf. I didn't start drinking coffee till I was in my 40s. And now it's definitely a part of my life. Um, but I <laughs> decaf or, or some kind of tea. And I'll do something like, that's like, if we're sitting together, I'll get on my, that's when I'll get on my phone and I'll do Wordle. Mm, yes, this is becoming L-B, all the rage. Yeah, especially I'll for a that, word lover. We'll that together. <laughs> And then or if there's, you know, a walk, like yesterday morning, we took a three mile walk this morning. I got on my exercise bike for 20 minutes and did some arm weights, hydrate, do all the things, simple breakfast. And then like today was scrambled eggs and toast and some kimchi. And then I get into my work day. I try to take healthy breaks. Like I do really schedule an, an at least a half hour to an hour. We're in the middle of the day. It's like, I'm actually eating my food, not mm-hmm. on my, not well, doing on your computer. Mm-hmm. keyboard meals. Yeah. And then I'm pretty fastidious usually about hitting hard stop on work between five and six on weekday evenings. Some evenings I teach. So usually on Wednesday evenings, not every week. And that's also really important to me. I don't like, I always have a couple of weeks of the month where I don't teach in the evening, where mm-hmm. I always have a full week where I can look forward to without evening activities. And also keep in mind, my kids are grown. My youngest is 28. <laughs> so I also have that freedom. When my mm-hmm. kids were little, they were tumbling on me and, you know, I homeschooled. And so all of that was going oh, on. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So it's also a different phase of my life. Mm-hmm. And then evening, we have dinner. We might watch a show. We read books. We might listen to music. I love, I, you know, the other thing when you ask me, like, what are my go-to things? Mm-hmm. I love to just dance. And so I yes. will put on loud music and sing really loudly. I'm not that good. And, <laughs> and really dance it out. I'm not that good either. And I actually I have love a hula hoop, which for me always not only engages my core, but kind of brings me back to my child self. Too. Yes. That is another of my fun go-tos. I love that. And those are also things I've, I've gone into. I try to, I try to do the dance thing. I'm also terrible, but I try to do it in the morning. Um, just as well, a way, like before I start my day. Person, so you get that release. I get also. that release. That's um, but it's been, it's been interesting because I've always been more of the, even though I was a gymnast growing up, I was always more of like a powerful athlete. And so, and, and it also in school, it's always more of this sort of like perfectionism, like masculine type energy. So I've been trying to do more like yoga and dancing. And I also got a hula hoop and did, um, I recently got a rebounder, one of those little trampolines, which is really fun too. So it's fun to experiment with all these different things. You know, you, something you said got me thinking too. Oh, what you said about being in school and being an athlete. And Mm. one of the reframes for me is to, especially when that perfectionism kicks in, which I mean, it's often that it kicks in. I just have to catch it. And then I can go long stretches where I'm like in a very nice calm Mm -hmm. mode. But when I think about things in terms of outcome, right? Like as an athlete, like if the goal is to win, Mm -hmm. it's very different than enjoying the game. Yes. Yes. And so when I can get long stretches of being in flow, Mm-hmm. that's when I feel my best because I'm in my creative, I'm in the process. I'm not goal and outcome oriented. Absolutely. When I have too many things going on and I can't get into flow, then everything becomes about like, I've got to get this finished. I've got to get this finished. I've got to get this finished. And that feels outcome oriented. But then the perfectionist part of me is also knowing I'm not getting anything done at the depth or level that I want to really. Mm-hmm. So as much as I can, for me, carve out larger spaces of time where I'm not interrupted and I can get mm-hmm. in flow and remember the enjoyment of creativity, that really helps. Speaking of, you asked me about social media. I am not, I am not fully at peace with the social media experience <laughs> at all. Um, I, you know, I, I hired a social media assistant recently mm-hmm. and about six months ago. So she's been helping with me, helping me with it, but I still bring it about 50% of the way. Sure. The strategy, the ideas, mm-hmm. I have to be in the reels and mm-hmm. the, you know, all that stuff and edit all the content and the content is coming from things I've written or I'm writing. Sure. Um, now I said to my social media, um, I call her my maven, my social media maven <laughs> oh, son, recently, um, it's a little bit like I think about success. To me, success is the side effect of the good work. And social media should be sort of the side effect of the good work. Mm-hmm. But social media becomes, you know, I said to her, I didn't become a physician, a midwife, an herbalist, a writer, a healer to do social media. Social media needs to reflect the things I'm doing. The work you're doing. Mm-hmm. But it can really become demanding and consuming. It's actually a lot of work. A lot of work. And so I'm trying personally to find the relationship between my time mm-hmm. and social media, keeping it authentic, but figuring mm-hmm. out ways that I can start to batch some things ahead of time. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think about social media every single day other than to support the community, that part yeah. I love. And other things come into play. I mean, social media is very much driven toward young, beautiful, blonde, fashionable, sexy, right? (laughs) I'm not saying anything disparaging about myself, but I'm also not all of the things that social media is kind of geared toward. So particularly as I've come into more mature years, Mm -hmm. I also have to overcome the hump of judging myself on social media. And it's interesting because I was talking to my social media person about this, who's 26 and blonde and beautiful and all the things. And she said, I know you think that's because you're 56, et cetera, et cetera. But she said, we're all going through that on social media. I'm constantly, she had to take six months off now of her own social media Mm -hmm. because she said she was getting dysmorphic looking at Mm -hmm. what she looked like with a filter 
and then what she actually looked like in a mirror. Totally. So I would say I'm in the process of finding balance. You know, if I put up a social media post and it doesn't perform, so mm-hmm. to speak, and get a lot of likes, I'm like, okay, that was an experiment. That wasn't mm-hmm. what people wanted to hear at that moment. And that's okay. There's no fail. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone said to me, Aviva, it's just social media. <laughs> if we skip a day or I just skip four days because I did, I was visiting friends and then I came yeah. home and I was like, I don't have the bandwidth for this. Um, not having it be a race or a competition, but it's hard. And, and it's become so much of our, our culture for mm-hmm. marketing and business mm-hmm. that, you know, right. collectively in healthcare and wellness and all that, that there's a lot of pressure to keep mm-hmm. up with it. So I'm finding that sweet spot. And I think a lot of it comes down to the same stuff as perfectionism, not comparing and despairing, mm-hmm. not feeling like I have to do it all the time being curious and experimental with it, having fun with the process instead of being driven by the outcomes, just worrying less about it yeah, um, and trying to be creative with it. But I haven't fully found it. And then it's like, you think you, you get in the groove with Instagram and then you find out there's TikTok and then there's <laughs> right. now there's these too. new features and <laughs> where does it stop? And mm-hmm. so I think that's the thing for me that I'm reconnecting with is that my work isn't social media. My work is these other things and social media needs to reflect that and fit into that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing too in balancing is, I think, you know, as a young sort of hippie, free herbal midwife, I felt a little more free about fully sharing my whole self. And there was something that happened about being in medical training that makes mm-hmm. you a professional that I think there's a pressure to keep up a certain external professionalism, which, and medicine drives perfectionist tendencies, especially Mm -hmm. women. So that's another thing I'm doing right now is sort of reconnecting with what does true authenticity look like for me? Like, can I have an ugly crying day and be like, this is what's really going on for me. And let's talk Mm -hmm. about mental health. Or can I have like something crappy going or stressful going on in my life that I talk about it. Cause it happens to all of us. Or all of us. Mm-hmm. Can I just show up with um, like how my hair looks that day and you know, when it still needs a, a wash and a blow dryer or whatever, or can I just riff, you know, mm-hmm. can I just riff and shoot the breeze or shoot the crap and just talk about what's on my mind. And if people are interested, they are. And if they're not, they're not. So I'm playing with all these things. And again, like it does, it ties back to the whole perfectionist thing. Absolutely. How are you dealing with it? And it's, it's all an experiment. So I, I was using it a lot more frequently and, you know, through my experience competing in CrossFit, obviously I developed a big following and have a big following. Yeah. And so at first, you know, after I was done competing in CrossFit, it felt like this pressure to keep up that following and to, you know, that's when I started my podcast and I felt like, okay, I have to, you know, post frequently. And there are certain expectations about, you know, who people, what people want to see from me. And so I found myself looking back now at a lot of my posts. I was, I'm very proud of a lot of my posts because I've always been very comfortable being vulnerable and authentic and sharing my real thoughts. But there was also a lot of filler posts in there that were kind of like, I feel like I need to post something. So I'm going to put this up. Yeah. Or I should be posting about that because right. that's what people are talking about right now. Like, right. Yeah. Um, or I need, you know, I need a post for today. What am I going to do? And, you yeah. know, even if it's not something I'm super, you know, excited about authentic. Exactly. So, so then I went through, I went through, I don't know what you would call it, but this awakening a couple of years ago, that was probably similar to your, um, you know, you hear this silence in the storm where I finally had some silence in in my life and did a lot of reflection. And I, I spent a couple of months off social media and then I really have used it very infrequently. I would say on average posting maybe once a month. Um, but I try to post like, you know, I, I post when I'm inspired to, or when I have something that I feel like I really want to share. And it's something that I am, I, I feel this like real calling to further develop it because I feel like I do want to share more. And there's so much that I've learned and want to, sh- I feel comfortable sharing about my own experience that I know could potentially help people. And just like, like you said, you know, social media is where people are spending a lot of their time and it's a way that we can reach people and and it needs people to be more authentic. And so I, I want to continue to use that platform. And I felt 
you know, for so long, I felt so much like, oh my gosh, I've been given this huge platform and I feel like I have this huge responsibility, but then I put so much pressure on myself. And so I would say the last basically year and a half, I've been sort of taking it very slow um, and, and kind of finding what that new place looks like and just working, like really spending a lot of time sort of doing my own work, just like you said, being off electronics more, doing my own work. And, um, and I know that there will be a time hopefully in the near future where I'm, where I'm sharing again more frequently. Isn't that part of it? Like there's the ebbs and the flows. Mm -hmm. And so I'm about to kind of wrap up a kind of busy time. And then I'm going into a little bit of a, of a a little bit more blank canvas in my calendar. And mm-hmm. people are already saying, can, can you do this interview? Can you do this? And I'm like, yes, I am scheduling for mid-January. And it takes some courage actually to do that. Does, and some yeah. patience. It's like, yeah, maybe I could be on 10 interviews and my book will bump up on Amazon or whatever. But it's like, you, I, for me, I really, I'm a very socially comfortable person. And like when I do a Myers-Briggs, I'm full on extrovert. Okay. But I'm actually a preferred introvert. I really deeply a crave. a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. I deeply crave alone time. I deeply crave being in flow, having time to think, create, translate information, sometimes just reflect Mm-hmm. And that's where the next well, like the well gets filled up and the next ideas come. So I'm in this place too right now where I'm like, I think, so October, November, December, I'm really kind of going into that. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the creative space. Bit. Yeah. And it's, like, I was, it's okay if we post a couple of times a week instead of five. Sure. Yeah. sure. I was so inspired by, you know, Brene Brown, who took this sabbatical and she just went off social media and, you know, yeah. took a break from her podcast for a few months and her whole yeah. team took time off. But I think that's and it's tricky. So natural. Like, yeah, it is. It's so important. I actually took a sabbatical last year for two months, the same time of year that I'm talking about now. And it was mm-hmm. incredible. Just really wow. hit pause. And um, this year I'm going to be doing it even more intentionally. It's tricky too, because Brene Brown has gazillion million followers Mm -hmm. and gets a gazillion million dollars for her podcast. So, you know, it's hard, like somebody listening might be like, well, that's nice. And even I feel like, well, that's nice. And I want to do that too. And we all can do it. Mm -hmm. But if your business is dependent on that Mm -hmm. community or that marketing, it it can be more challenging. So one of the things I'm learning with social media too, is that simpler is better. I mean, like we, I had this, I made this granola and I was pouring my cashew milk that I also made, just like simple stuff to make, mm-hmm. you know, like fancy, fancy, pouring it. And I was like, wow, that's really pretty. So I gave that bowl to my husband. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to do this again. And I'm gonna, just going to get my iPhone and do like a, a little video, video yeah. of the pour. And that was it, the pour. <laughs> and I was like, what if we just posted that? And so we, we did, we had it, actually, we had posted it and it was in some bigger post about something and people were mm-hmm. like, what's the recipe? What's the recipe? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, what if we just did a post of the poor and the caption on the post literally just says, want the recipe? Head over to the link in bio. Mm. And it was one of these, like, it took no, no time. Like it took mm-hmm. my social media maven, like three minutes and it got like 70,000 views, you know, wow. and just like, yeah. okay, that's the ticket. Like what is the <laughs> low hanging fruit of stuff that you really do and you yeah. really love? but simple. It's so true. There's so many simple moments in our day that like, also I'm sure people would love to connect with or that just people want to know, you know, oh, they pour their cashew milk just like I pour my cashew milk. Like we're all connected and we're all, you know, experiencing life. I mean, like I'm looking at you right now and, um, you know, I'm just seeing, cause we're on video together, like this beautiful lighting shift behind you. And I can see the, shadows of your, the grid of your window. And there's like some movement. I'm just like, <laughs> yes. Oh, that is like the perfect day moment. It's beautiful. It is. It's a perfect time of night here. Actually. The house. Where are you? I'm in Lexington, Kentucky. Oh. And yes, it's, I think it, we actually have the best spot in Lexington. It's overlooking this beautiful lake and the sunset always goes oh, over the lake at night. So nice. yeah, I love it. It's my favorite time of day. Oh, beautiful. 
Well, I know we've already gone over time here. I typically wrap up with three questions. Do you have time for a rapid fire? All right. My first one is what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Uh, I mean, I think it's the things I said, getting outside, Mm -hmm. getting good sleep. And I'm going to double the second one because it's both food intake. It's keeping my blood sugar balanced, eating mm-hmm. steadily and healthily and staying hydrated. Mm-hmm. So staying important. hydrated is really important for me. Coffee That's does great. not count as hydration. <laughs> Unfortunately. What about one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something that you're working on? Um, a really good one. I would say pushing my workouts to a, hot, a higher, harder level. Mm. Um, that has been challenging for me. I've always been fit and I walk and I hike, but when I've worked with trainers in the past, there's an edge that I can go past, not like a perfectionist edge, but like mm-hmm. an actual muscle building edge yeah. that I crave that for me is the challenge. My best friend in the world, she's really disciplined. So she's helping me to stay on target with that. And I'm helping her stay on target with some of the things that she's challenging. I love that. I love that accountability. And I find that too, it's so much harder to do on your own. That's why, you know, I think a big realization for me through the pandemic was I can do CrossFit workouts in my garage, but if I go to the gym and I'm in the community and next to other people, I'm always going to get more out of it. So yes. Um, yes. I love that. Last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? Mm. For me, I think a healthy life is spacious in the time that I have to be in the things that bring me joy, pleasure, and calm. So the spaciousness to say yes to my girlfriend to go to a dance class on a Tuesday morning or the spaciousness to go out to the garden for an hour in the afternoon or the spaciousness to stop everything and hop on a call with my, one of my daughters at you know 10 o'clock in the morning when they call me or the spaciousness to clear my decks because I'm in such flow with a writing project that I can just keep going. So spaciousness is a really big sign for me of a healthy life. Wow. I love that. I think I've asked that question well over 200, getting close to 300 times. And I have yet to hear spaciousness as an answer. And I just love it. That's, it's beautiful. Thank you. This is wonderful, lovely connection and conversation. So thank you so much for inviting me and your beautiful questions and conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time and to saying yes. I know you have a lot of, a lot of things to on your schedule to do. And so I appreciate I that. And you I, were such a, an easy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm very much looking forward um, to the course and, and being able to learn from you even more. So thank you so much, Dr. Aviva. And where can people check out all the things that you're doing? So you can come to my Instagram at Dr. Aviva Ram. You can go to my website at avivaram.com, or you can check out my podcast in any of the places you check out podcasts. Instagram is probably a really great place only because if you're on it, that's where I announce the latest podcast, the latest Mm -hmm. course or book or program or article. So that's a great kind of hub. And then I do have a newsletter that you can sign up for at my website for free. Which are all of it. And yes, I agree. The uh, the Instagram is is great. There's always lots of very, um, you know, applicable, practical information. And it's all done in a very fun way. So one of my favorite accounts to follow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Aviva. I really appreciate it. Oh, beautiful to be here with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.